Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, we have a special treat for all of our listeners who enjoy upland hunting. I'm joined by Tom Keir. Tom is an avid outdoorsman and writer, and I was fortunate enough to catch up with Tom at the end of a day chasing grouse and woodcock in New England. Tom shares his passion for writing and the outdoors and his thoughts on the future of the sports we love. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And as we continue to create and distribute more diverse content, you may want to consider downloading our iOS or our Android app. We organize our content by category so you can go straight to the content that interests you the most. The apps are free and the links are in the show notes. Alternatively, just search for the Articulate Fly where you get your mobile apps. Now, on to the interview. Well, Tom, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Hey, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, well, I'm uh, I'm super appreciative that you took some time uh, out of the field uh, to, to chat with me this evening. Well, it's dark, so, uh, you know, I appreciate you setting the call up at 6.30 because if it was at 4.30, it probably wouldn't have happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. And we have a tradition on the articulate fly. Uh, we always ask our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Um, I think it would probably have to be uh, pan fishing with my dad and sister. That's the, the earliest one I can remember in the Kenzie Reservoir. Um, you know, bluegills, uh, perch, some, some smallmouth bass, largemouth bass. Probably about five or six got started early because uh, that was in the sixties and there wasn't a lot of digital distraction, so we just started fishing and hunting and playing sports at a young age. Yeah, very neat. When did you get pulled to the dark side of fly fishing? Well, that's actually interesting because I I uh, I got sucked in not because of the fishing. Um, my neighbor, um, his father was a doctor of cardiopulmonary research at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, and he was a fly fisherman. Um, he had been to, uh, to Labrador and New Brunswick and caught a lot of uh, lake trout and char and Atlantic salmon, and he was a big fly fisherman. But I got started through fly tying, and it was in the, you know, it's probably the 1973 Herders Catalog when I got a Thompson B. Vice and bunch of tails and feathers and some fur and had spent uh, probably about a year or two tying flies and then got into to fly fishing. So I kind of got into it a little bit backwards. Yeah, we've had a few folks on the show that have kind of done it that way and kind of backed into it because they had all these flies and they wanted to use them. Right. And so as you progressed in your fly fishing journey, who are some of the folks that mentored you and what did they teach you? On the fly side, you know, the, the mentoring program was a lot different back then. Um, now it's very organized. You know, there's the, a lot of the R3 movements that are, are formulated with courses of instruction. But, um, you know, I had a lot of uh, middle school coaches, uh, some football coaches and, uh, and English teachers that, you know, they were fly fishermen and they would be going fishing and my dad didn't fly fish. He was a thin fisherman and a surf guy, but they would just offer to take me out. And we worked out a swap where they'd take me fishing and pay for gas and I'd bring sandwiches and, and, you know, some cookies and chips and some drinks. And, um, you know, basically when we got to the, to the river or the stream, you know, we'd go our separate ways. They'd offer a tip or two here and there, but, you know, it wasn't really like the, the kind of formal mentoring program like today, but it was, you know, I was very thankful and it was something that I wanted to do and they were generous and kind to, uh, to bring me along and I just learned a lot, you know, probably more the hard way than the right way. Yeah, it's always interesting to talk to people that are kind of pre-YouTube and, you know, where, you know, I mean, I picked picked up fishing from fishing with my grandfather and, you know, you went to the library and you just had to find people that were interested in what you were interested in. 
Yeah, you read a lot, and um, you know, I read every single magazine. I still have the uh, some of the early fly tires when they were um, before it had gone to um, a four-page, you know, four-color separation glossy with a perfect binding. They were just they were typed manuscripts, you know, from North Conway, New Hampshire, with guys like Lou Tabory talking about fishing with floating lines for straight bass on the surf. And, and um, you know, fly fishermen, I have a spring 1975 issue that really lit the bug. Um, but, you know, magazines, books, you know, trial and error, it was, you know, it was just fun to be outside and you'd learn something every time you went. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're also a wing shooting enthusiast. When did that become part of your sporting life? Well, I grew up in a dairy community, so um, there used to be a lot of birds around. Um, you know, with a lot, we had, uh, believe it or not, wild pheasant, um, grouse and woodcock for sure. There are a lot of ducks and geese. Um, so I got started, uh, I think my first dog was an Irish setter. 1973, so I would have been 10. But, you know, again, um, it was just a different era. There was a lot of open space. Everybody seemed to fish and hunt. There was a lot of game around. Um, our dogs were terrible. Uh, they were line bred from show stock, and they were all Irish setters. We had, uh, you know, I think my dad had the idea that like Julia Child, you know, more is better, but she was talking about wine and and butter. So <laughs> if the first dog didn't work out, you know, the, another one would, and then another would, and another would. And, but, you know, they were, the, the genetics were too tight. So they were beautiful to look at. Um, they'd run great for about five, 10 minutes. But, uh, after that, um, they would just, uh, their focus, they'd lose their focus and they'd, you know, catch a scent of, could be a deer or a raccoon or a skunk and they were off and running on their own so it got real frustrating so um you know uh had a, a bunch of different dogs at that age but it was real frustrating you know when you've got a dog and you're you're trying to make him or her do what you want them to do and and uh, they just weren't coming around so it was you know we did a lot of that as a kid but i wasn't very successful at it yeah, I can say that uh, my childhood is uh, scarred with a couple very incorrigible cocker spaniels, so I totally get it. Oh, field cockers? Yes. They've really come back in the last uh, bunch of years, um, you know, increasing in popularity, and they're wonderful little dogs. Yeah, unfortunately, ours were, um, I think, inbred and disobedient, so. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so... So in terms of wing shooting, was it the dogs that, you know, cause I know some people are drawn to the sport because of watching the dogs work. And then there are other people that are really into the birds. I mean, what was it that pulled you into wing shooting? I think it was the dogs. You know, I like the, uh, I like the firearms. I grew up in the, um, in the Connecticut river Valley. So we we're surrounded by all the gun companies. Um, I was born in Meriden, which is where Parker shotguns were made. Um, Marlin was made in North Haven, two towns away. Um, nine miles away was Winchester and Mossberg. Uh, about 18, 20 miles away was Colt and Hartford, and then upriver in Springfield, Mass, um, just north of the tobacco fields in Connecticut, was uh, Smith and Wesson and Savage. So, you know, it was, you know, people, people forget that, that, that Connecticut River Valley was really rich in, in firearm companies. So uh, I like guns. Um, I like the history. I like the literature. I love art. Um, but, uh, and birds, obviously, I love. But for me, it's the dogs. You know, you create a team with a dog. You have good days. You have bad days. You have days in the middle. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie when they do things right. And it's usually the result of having a dog with good genetics and one that you put the time in to train. And, um, you know, it's a real team effort. So, so I like that, you know, fly fishing, solitary, you know, working with dogs, um, is it's, it's the team. And, and I think that 
the, the combination of the two makes for a real rich life. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, I don't bird hunt a lot, but I'm always just, you know, that happiness on the dog's face to me is just makes the entire day worthwhile. Um, was running my dog, uh, got a, a couple real good dogs right now. Uh, I was running my wife's dog, Rebel, who's, uh, he's six, he's an English setter and, and he's just been jam on. Um, he was the easiest dog I've ever had to bring along. Um, good genetics. Uh, he was from, um, Buck Carico's, uh, Buck owns Lion Country Supply, the big gun dog supply company in um, Port Matilda, Pennsylvania. And he's, he's just a wonderful dog. And I've uh, got a puppy, just turned two, and he's um, from Jim Chambers and Thor Kane's uh, litter a couple years ago. And uh, he's a setter also. He's been doing great. But the thing that was funny yesterday is um, we had a flight of woodcock that came or so, but two days ago we had six, seven inches of snow and it pushed a lot of woodcock down and it went to the first cover with the puppy and um he was jam on and uh i walked in and i saw one woodcock go off to the side and another one popped up and then another one and another one there were five of them and he came unglued i've never seen five woodcock go up at the same time the most i'd ever seen was three and seen two not often but often enough and um you know, he just got excited. He got, you know, you could just see it. And he was just super excited. But we moved 35 birds for over the next 90 to 120 minutes. And um, he knocked most of them. You know, he'd make a, a, a brief point. He was excited. He'd go in and bust them. So we had to, you know, pull back out and do a little bit of training, calm them down and staunch them back up and get back in the game and get them refocused. But, you know, most importantly to calm them down. And, and that's just a wonderful part of dogs. You have, you know, it's just like with kids, it's like with people, it's like with athletics. It's, you have some good days, you have some average days, and you have some really poor days. But turning those poor days into an average day to a great day, that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's really neat. And so, you know, you've had lots of dogs over the course of your life. Do you have a preference for setters versus pointers? Um, well, going from the Irish setters, it was natural. I like setters. Um, I like their, well, I like performance setters. Um, yeah, I like that, uh, 40 to 45 pound for a male, a little bit smaller for a female. I like their athleticism. I like their square heads and their, um, triangular uh, faces or muzzles so that they can get a lot of oxygen in and um, like their gait. Um, I like them running inside the bell range, which is usually 100, 150 yards. So, you know, they're just naturally athletic. Um, so shifting from the uh, from the, the poor performing line bred Irish setters to the English setters is a huge, uh, huge advantage. And, and I've stuck with the breeds for uh, for my entire life. Um, I love pointers. Um, I will probably have a pointer at some point in my life. Um, but I think in uh, in an article that I recently wrote for Strong, I was talking about I love all horses, some dogs, and no cats. The horses, I just I love horses. It doesn't matter if it's a mini or a draft horse. I just love them all. And when it comes to dogs, I love sporting dogs and within the sporting dogs i love pointing dogs and within the pointing dog realm i'm a setter guy but i am a sucker for for pointers i like their athleticism i like their build i like um i, I just like the way they're wired they're just uh they're uh they've got great noses good bird smarts um and they're just athletic as all get out Probably a little soft from the versatile dogs. I like the the field cockers, um, John Rex Gates and Diane Deming Gates are uh, are breeding some really great uh, English field cockers. He, he uses strike dogs and also his flushing dogs. Springers, I like Springers. I like short hairs. Um, I do like uh, Vimeroners. Uh, 
they're kind of a cool dog. But I'm a setter guy. Got it. And, you know, I think you wrote about this too recently and Strung. Talk a little bit about how breed preferences have changed over time. Well, you know, they're trendy. And um, I had never really thought that um, the dog breeds were really trendy. And I started seeing in the AKC, you know, every year the AKC will announce, um, you know, the the rankings. And I saw that the lab had been America's sweetheart for over a quarter century. And that's well-deserved. There are a lot of different types of labs, whether they're the UK labs like the Blue Cypress Kennels labs, uh, Robert Milner's labs that uh, he founded Wild Rose Kennels, and uh, now he has Duck Hill Kennels. But, um, you know, there's a reason. They're, they're, they're great dogs. But I saw that the German Shorthair Pointer had crept up into the number nine position, and I said, hmm, that's interesting. Why? Because... It's not like we've seen a tremendous increase in hunters. Um, so I was curious as to where, what's making this the ninth most popular breed in America. And it's because they're athletic dogs, they're biddable dogs, uh, they like the water, they like land, they can point, they can retrieve, they can um, track. And they're a versatile dog for a good reason, because a lot of people like them for active outdoor sports. They like um, trail runners, can run with a short hair. They, you know, if you like to swim or canoe or kayak, any other water sports, you can um, you can do that with a with a short hair very easily. Um, any of the bike during where you have um, you're riding a bike and you have your uh, dog tethered to get some exercise. So they're they're they're, and so their popularity has increased because of their multi-purpose use, that they appeal to a lot of people, all people who like active outdoor sports, whether it's hunting or hiking. And then I started looking a little deeper into, um, you know, my, you know, not being self-conscious, but I was a little self-conscious saying, what about my dog, right? Where do my dogs fall on the list? And they're abysmal. And then I started researching when was the last time that, you know, the setters and pointers and, you know, Gordon setters, um, when were they popular? And the last time that they were popular was the turn of the century. Well, that's a long time ago. So there's a trendiness with, with, uh, with breed. Some of it may be coming about more recently because of, um, digital communication. Some of it is taste preference that as people are moving away from hunting, you know, the consumptive sports, hunt fish, which is to the, uh, non-consumptive sports, hiking, camping, you know, uh, mountain biking, canoeing, kayaking, etc. that, um, that people like to be outdoors and in order to, share that experience with a dog, you have to have a performance dog of some sort. And that's where the short hair came in. So it was interesting starting to, to look at some of the, the trends and how they do change over time. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because I can remember as a kid, you know, people still keeping working dogs that really never came in the house. And I don't see that very much anymore. I can't think of anyone that I know anymore that, you know, the, the hunting dogs stay out in the kennels um, and don't come in the house. Well, that's been a, um, you know, on the, on the, if you're a pro trainer or um, a serious hunter, you'll keep your dogs and dog runs and kennels, you know, outside. There's a, there's a benefit to it as well because they're used to the environment so if you have say a Labrador that you're going to use for waterfowling and it's been outside um, going from the summer to the fall to the winter it's, it's, the dog is already um, accustomed to the environment it's used to the cold there's a you know you can run into some problems if you take a dog that's used to the house and say you keep your heat set at 70 degrees and it's used to 70 degrees and suddenly you're in you know uh in a duck blind, it's 34 degrees with a wind chill. It might be down to the low 20s, high teens. You know, that dog is not used to the environment. So, um, so it can, 
you know, you have to watch out for hypothermia, frostbite, things like that. So, um, it, you know, to your point, there is a big difference between um, the bond in a dog. Do you, do you get better performance from your dog if you have him sleep in your bed with you? Which was George Bird Evans from Virginia's, uh, from West Virginia's, um, old hemlock setters, um, theory that the, the more time you spend with a dog, especially indoors, you know, um, or sleeping in your bed, that dog will want to perform better for you. And the, the flip side to that coin is that dogs that are only taken out of their kennels and their outdoor dog run to perform, whether it's for training or for conditioning or for actually hunting, that they are wired and focused that when they come out of that, that dog run and go into a, um, a dog box and then are released into a field or a marsh, that they are focused 110% on their job at hand, whether it's pointing birds, flushing birds, or retrieving them. So it's a, you know, it's a, it, there isn't a right answer. It's just kind of two sides to the equation. I've seen both work really well. And Got it. And, you know, so to kind of come back to the bird part of the equation, what's your favorite bird uh, to pursue in the field? Uh, probably three. Um, I'm, I'm a dyed in the wool New Englander, so grass woodcock is the upland bird that we have here. So those are that's what we're hunting now. Uh, we're finding a lot more woodcock than grouse, but those are my top two. Um, my wife, as uh, we had spoken before, is from uh, North Carolina, so spending a lot of time down there. Really like quail. Um, so those would probably be my top three. But that's just because I haven't had the opportunity to go out west and hunt prairie birds or the southwest to hunt, you know, the different species of quail. But, you know, if it involves a bird and a dog and some good people, I'm in. No, absolutely. And, (laughs) you know, absolutely. And, you know, you you fish a lot and you, you wing shoot a lot. And so, you know, I get the impression that you're one of those people that has that you know, what I would kind of call that old school seasonal arc, uh, to your sporting life so that, you know, the timing may differ a little bit every year, but you have a very, I suspect you have a very deliberate cadence to your sporting activities throughout the year. I appreciate you mentioning that because I had, uh, five friends that were supposed to come up and hunt and they all bailed for, you know, I mean, we had this plan to like for months and they all bailed just for whatever reason, you know, not a real, none of them were really good reasons. They just hadn't planned for it, you know? So I, I am very deliberate in it. I like to fish. I like to hunt. I like to run dogs. Um, I've been doing a lot of gardening with my wife, which I never thought I would like, but I really enjoy it. So there's a seasonality to things, you know, you can't, um, you can't plant corn and, in August and expect it to be ready at the end of the month, you know? Um, so yeah, I, uh, September, late September, October through probably mid November is grouse woodcock, um, shipped over from where we live. We live on, uh, on the Cape, Cape Cod. Um, we've got some duck marshes behind our house. So we'll see some, some black ducks some diver ducks some sea ducks you know, probably through, uh, mid January, um, you know, a couple of trips down for Christmas to see my wife's family. So we'll do some Southern, uh, some, you know, Bob White quail hunting or more recently, um, woodcock just cause there are more woodcock around. Um, and then it comes back to trout fishing in the spring, which as you know, is the best time. The hatches are the best and then move into, uh, turkey hunting then striped bass and bluefish. Uh, it's pretty much the year, albacore and uh, bonito when they come in in August, September. And then we go right back into the hunting. So it's it's, it's predictable because I like to fish and hunt. 
Yeah, very neat. And, you know, you've been really fortunate to spend most of your professional life in the hunting and fishing space. And, you know, I know so many people who are desperately trying to align their professional life with their outdoor passion. What are your suggestions for folks who kind of want to blend those together? That's a good question. You know, um, I think anything in life comes down to making a decision. You know, there's a... my wife always says, uh, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And if you stand for fishing and hunting, and that's something that's part of your life and it's something that you want to do, then you just have to do it. I was working in advertising in Boston, a big agency, um, when I got out of grad school, and I was working seven days a week. Most of the time, it was you know 16 to 18-hour days. And after about a year, year and a half of, you know, making a lot of money, which was necessary because I had to pay off my college and grad school debt. And uh, living in the city, you know, is expensive. And after about a year and a half, I realized that I hadn't been fishing but once or twice. And that was important to me. And I hadn't tied a single fly. That's how I got into fly fishing. I hadn't fly fish for a straight bass or throwing a plug. Um, I didn't have a dog. I wasn't hunting. And, um, but I, you know, had a career and everybody thought that was, you know, wow, you're lucky to be working in advertising. And, and they were right. And it was cool. And it was a great time. But I didn't get to do what I liked. And finally, one day, I just had enough. And I said, you know, if I keep on this path, I'm going to be retired probably somewhere in my 60s and I'm going to be sitting in a rocking chair you know looking back on my life thinking I worked a lot made a lot of money became a partner in an ad agency traveled the world did whatever but I never really got to do what I like to do and I quit on the spot and I started writing at that point and um, you know freelance writing as as you know, is is not a lucrative business. It was more lucrative back then before digital, uh, when compensation was a uh, dollar to three dollars a word, and um, books were being published regularly and, and you know purchased on a regular basis. So you could you could actually make a living as a writer as opposed to now. It's hard, um, but. You know, you have to commit to it. You have to find, you know, you have to make decisions. And some of these decisions are not the easiest ones. I wound up living uh, in this dump apartment. There's a top floor. It didn't have uh, any heat. I had this little space heater. It was $375 a month. It was two blocks away. It was in uh, Roxbury, two blocks away from Boston City Hospital, which was right when Mike Dukakis was trying to combat the AIDS epidemic by giving free needles to heroin addicts. And I'd, you know, walk down the stairs in the morning to go to work and, um, you know, doing whatever odd jobs I was doing at the time. And, you know, there'd be junkies passed out on my front doorstep that I'd have to step over. But, you know, you start out slow and you just keep at it. I write every day. Not, um, it's not something that I just wake up and do. I, you know, I, I treat it like a sport. You know, it's like, gotta go to practice, gotta hit the weight room, you gotta condition, you gotta, you know, do your drills, and then you can get ready for the game. So I, I, I write every day. Some of it gets published, some of it is just character sketch, or I work on dialogue, or I work on plot lines, but every day I'm working on my craft because the craft is the most important part. It's kind of like you with the podcast, you know, and, and, and the questions that you sent over. You're, you're a student, and you're, um, you're working on your craft and trying to pull together questions that would create a meaningful, um, a meaningful podcast. It's not just something that you, know, you do once every six months or so. 
So I think that it's committed to it, and I think it's um, established standards. You know, there there's a lot of changes in publishing going on and have been, especially with digital, and some of it isn't particularly good. Um, you know, publishing is a legitimate business, but, but on the digital side, there's um, a belief that because you can set up your own web page and have a blog or post social um, socially that there isn't a, a formula or a format or a, you know a semblance of professionalism, but there really is. And if you take a look at um, what was that? That was uh, the Cowboys and Eagles game. I think it was December, either late November 2012 or December 2012, somewhere around there. Sunday Night Football. But Bob Costa got in big trouble for doing what the one of the problems that I see with the digital world is, um, which is at the halftime show. What do you want to listen to at the halftime show? You want to hear offensive production. You want to hear um, key matchups. You want to hear um, second half substitutions. You want to see, uh, you know, an entertainment show maybe or cheerleaders, etc. But you know, you, you basically want to talk football. And he took that halftime show and talked about um, gun control and Second Amendment. So that is a shift that is very dangerous because you're going from vetted information to non-vetted information. Vetted information comes from the source, facts, fact-checked. Um, it allows the audience, it presents both. Uh, the, the topics are presented on two sides. It's the pro and the con and the audience, the reader, the listener, the viewer is allowed the opportunity to make up his or her own mind based on the information that's presented. And it's presented by a company, you know, New York Times, Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, Strong, Sporting Classics, Great Sporting Journal, Sporting Dog Journal, Retriever Journal, etc. that have been around for a long time and they have, um, they are um, a source that makes sure that the information that comes out is like the New York Times motto, all the news that should be printed. Non-vetted information is just, you know, there's a lot of the digital, which is people can can make up whatever they want. Um, and it's why you start seeing a lot of, um, you know, people saying, well, if it was on Facebook, it must be true, right? Well, it, Facebook, people believe that Facebook or some of the digital magazines are vetted sources when, and many are, but they may be non-vetted. So vetted is fact-driven, non-vetted is opinionated. And that's what Bob Costa did on the Cowboys um, Eagles halftime report. As he used a vetted source, which is a TV network, and he used it to present a non-vetted piece of information, which was his opinion of Second Amendment and gun control. And when those two start blending, that's what is called hashtag fake news. So for the digital networks that are that are you know, following professional standards of journalism, no problem. If they're offering opinions on a regular basis or just trying to fire everybody up to get more likes or clicks, you know, that's opinion based. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out because, I mean, I, you know, I've kind of watched, uh, you know, I haven't been in the front row seat like you have, but I've certainly seen to me, like it seems like people are kind of starting to wake up to this and there's kind of a push to go back to curation um, to, you know, for lack of a better word, to kind of get a, some type of good housekeeping stamp of approval on content. Um, you know, certainly not everybody, but it seems like kind of people that are being more thoughtful that realize that, you know, paper boys are kind of a thing of the past or kind of trying to find kind of a substitute for that in the 21st century. Uh, I think you're right, and it's um, you know it's it's probably just the the natural origin of trying to adjust to a new form of media uh, of media. So, but it's agreed. Yeah, it's it's necessary. 
Yeah. And so if we back up a little bit, I just want to make sure I understand it. How, how old were you when you kind of had um, what I know some people call an Irish moment? And you're like, I'm out. I'm going to become a writer. Um, I'd always written. Um, I started, you know, just kind of like with, with fly fishing, I got into it backwards. You know, I started fly tying and then I got into fly fishing. I started out, you know, I was always, uh, always loved to read as a kid. So I first was a reader and then became a writer. I started off writing poetry. I sucked at it. Um, uh, wrote a lot of short fiction, literary short fiction. Um, and, you know, that was teens, early 20s, and the aha moment was just, uh, probably was late 20s. Yeah, got it. Do you remember the first piece that you got published and got paid for? Oh, paid for? Mm-hmm. Um, paid for. Uh, so when you're, you know, back in the day, um, you know, you'd, you'd go through the, the formal process. You would type up a, a query letter, send it to, uh, to an editor. They would take six to eight weeks to review it. If they liked the idea, they would give you an assignment. If they didn't, they'd say no. Others like finished manuscripts, and you would send in the finished manuscript. They would take somewhere between three and four months and either accept it and send you a check or they would reject it. But a lot of them, if, if you were a new writer, you would be compensated on tear sheets. Um, so my first published piece was for a literary journal in Connecticut called Heading Out, and I got uh, no money but 10 copies of the magazine. And the reason that was important is that, so that when I would send in my next round of queries, I would include this tear sheet um, so the editor could see that I was published and then that um, that would grow into more revenue producing but I think it was a scuba piece for Marblehead Magazine that was actually my, my first compensation yeah, Very neat and who are some of the authors and writers that you like to read and follow? In um, just in general or um, for sporting? Um, I think kind of both, really, because it's kind of always interesting to me. Um, you know, I, f- I find some outdoor writers, it's always interesting to hear about who they read or who inspires them also kind of outside of the outdoor writing world. Um, so on the, the general um, general reading, I like the modernists and the postmodernist era. So that'd be James Joyce, um, Ford Maddox Ford, Virginia Woolf, uh, D.H. Lawrence, Thomas Mann um, on the postmodern side, uh, Thomas Pynchon, uh, Tony Morrison, Gunter Grass, uh, Milan Kundera. On the sporting side, and, and I just like, you know, there's a transition, you know, there's the goal, there's the pre-war, you know, the modernist era was before World War One, So there had never been a world war. So it was, a, it was a, an era of prosperity. People were writing in long flowery sentences. Uh, um, themes were of interest. They were exploring social milieus, different economic levels, art, you know, music. Um, and then the postmodern era was after World War II, and the significance, there were two, two significant factors. One was the dropping of the atomic bomb, which uh, triggered the realization that life could end at any moment. And we still talk about that today, you know, that uh, we're talking about North Korea. What are they if they drop the bomb? Um, that life could end. So that that brought about a literary style of pessimism, nihilism, you know, the, um, negativity, uh, what's the work, self-questioning. And um, the breakdown of the nuclear family was the second big component of it, which is uh, divorce, you know, which again, I think divorce rates are up around 60, 65%. So it's what happens when you know, the, the standard family breaks down from 
2.1 kids per average household. You know, now you have single parent homes. Um, some, you know, surrogate parents. It's very different now. So that was a big change of going from the uh, the atomic bomb dropping and the, the breakdown of the nuclear family. As it pertains to sporting, um, a lot of wonderful writers uh, like Gene Hill, Nash Buckingham, Havila Babcock, uh, Steve Smith, Dave Books. Steve Smith was the um, editor of the Pointing Dog Journal and Retriever Journal. He's a wonderful writer. Dave Books is out in Montana. Um, they're both contemporaries. Um, wonderful writer. Jim McLennan is great. Um, Shane Townsend, uh, he's in Virginia. He's phenomenal. He writes Fish Hunt. Uh, you know whose work I like, I, I like a lot is, um, Ryan Sparks, mm-hmm. uh, from Strong. He's a great writer. Um, I like Roger Pinkney from South Carolina. Um, he's, uh, he's got a very interesting style. Mike Gaddis. Um, he's from North Carolina. He's he's real good. So uh, yeah, we're fortunate that there are a lot of really good um, contemporary writers. Yeah, it's funny. I seem to buy about four books for everyone that I have time to read. So I completely understand the um, I guess the the blessing of the riches and of so many people to read. Right? Yeah, that's for sure. You know, and so. Um, you're a little bit older than me, but not much. And so, you know, I always like to say the older I get, I just have a few miles on my tires. You know, we talk, <laughs> That's a good one. right. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of your, your literary interests. And I think there's probably a similar kind of thought process around kind of how the sport has changed, you know, fishing and hunting sports have changed kind of over your lifetime and your career. What are your kind of thoughts on that? That's a good question. Yeah, you know, um, I, I guess I'd probably have to couch it with just life's a lot more complex these days. It used to be simple. We didn't have any of the stranger danger stuff. My friends and I, you know, um, would, when I was 10, so that would have been 73, you know, we'd get our, our crappy little bikes. We'd take the laces out of our um, Chuck Taylor all-star sneakers. You know, tie a, a rod and reel to the bike frame, get a backpack with a couple of sandwiches, and we'd ride 10, 15, 20 miles to go fishing. And we would do that all day. Half the way home, we'd probably get tired because we were 10 or 11, and we'd been at it all day. And, you know, I'd grown up in a dairy community, dairy farm community, you know, a farmer would be driving by in a pickup, usually a Ford F-250, and say you fellas need a ride and we throw our bikes in and jump in the back and that would be that. You didn't have to worry about anything. And, you know, same thing with hunting. You could knock on a neighbor's door and say, you know, I saw some, some turkeys in your backyard or some geese in your backfield. You know, do you mind if we go and hunt them up? There'd, there'd be no problem. And now everything's getting a lot more complex. You know, it's harder to find places to fish and hunt. Um, a lot of competition for spots and for game. Um, there's a lot of chatter on the social networks about, I was uh, reading a seminar and one of the writers, um, the National Writers Organizations, that they're doing one on, on people feeling insignificant based on other people's social media posts. That if you take the time and... Um, shoot a 12-point buck and post the picture up. And if I see that, but I feel bad about myself, like I didn't get one. I only got a four-pointer. And that's, you know, that that never was around. It's like, you know, you earned that buck. You put more time in than me. You know more of what you were doing. Um, you paid your dues. You probably had a lot of days where you didn't see any game, but you stuck with it and you fought through it and the cold and the long days. And then, you know, you, you put the ball in the end zone and you harvested a 12 pointer. Good for you. It shouldn't be anything about me. I should work harder. So 
so there's um you know and it's a lot more social as opposed to uh which is more about the people as opposed to the activity you know it used to be a lot more focused on a lot of focus on the dog a lot of focus on the technique a lot of focus on the process not so much on the gear um you know more on the tactics more on the ethics you know um there's always a nod to those who came before us because they knew more before more than we did they um they made the same mistakes over and over again when they were our age and they learned from it and they're happy to pass it along so I think that's a big shift, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of flows into my next question is really kind of, um, kind of your thoughts, um, and concerns about the future of outdoor sports and our sporting traditions. You're asking all the hard hitting questions here, my friend. (laughs) Um, you, you know, um, I'm sure that when the first, um, Icebox came out, the first telephone came out when electricity came on uh, to replace, you know, the kerosene lantern. People were concerned that life was over as we know it. And um, I guess, uh, you know, I was talking with Angela and my wife, and um, we are just looking at hunter numbers. And... Um, you know, putting it in, in context that hunters are less than 5% of the American population and, you know, fluctuating somewhere around 11 to 15 million, depending on the year. Um, you know, I'm concerned that, that they're going away. I'm concerned that we're turning our back on the tradition and focusing more on you know, the, the future. And, um, I noticed this when I was coming back from hunting in New Brunswick, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I saw this car pulled over to the side of the road. There was this glow coming from underneath the chassis. I was like, uh, do I pull over to see if this person needs help? But the glow underneath the chassis made me think that might be a drug dealer, right? And I hate thinking that way. Anyhow, I pull over, and now I'm looking in the woods to make sure that there isn't some gang that's going to come and steal my car. Not that I care about the car, but my dogs are in the car, and I care about the dog, so I didn't want that to happen. Well, I, I walk up to the side of the car, and what do I see? I see the car, the right front tire is jacked up, and the glow coming out from underneath the chassis was from a cell phone. And it was this, this young man, probably about, you know, 1920, maybe 21. And he had his phone on and he was watching a YouTube of how to change a flat tire. And so therein lies the dilemma, which is, I think it's really cool that technology, just like going back to the first lights and, you know, the first cars and the first, you know, washing machines and refrigeration, that's all cool and it's interesting. I think that it's really cool that this kid could take a look at a video on YouTube about how to change a car tire. My question is, what if he was outside of cell range? And why is this not a skill that he automatically knows that if he is going to drive a car, why does he not know how to maintain it? Why is everything reliant upon just in time? Why, you know, um, why do, why is everything consumed immediately? Because when I look at the quality of outdoorsmen, um, we have better gear, we have better technology. Do we have better woodsmanship skills? Hunting with my daughter a bunch of years ago, she was calling me an old man. And I said, yeah, okay, why? And she's like, because you use a compass and a, and a map to navigate. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to get us up. And you get us back. She's like, fine. 
So we're running the dogs and we go up one mountain and over the mountain and we're down in the valley and there's probably about an hour and a half on. And I said, all right, um, I've done my share. You, you take over, you get us back to the truck. And she goes to, you know, pull up uh, her Google Maps and figure out her GPS and figure out how to get us back. But there's no signal. And she just about had a meltdown. So I let her sit on it for about 10, 15 minutes. And then, um, you know, was able to teach her some basic woodsmanship, like watching where the sun is rising, where the sun, the path of the sun, you know, so you can get a, get a bead looking at the mountain ranges, looking at the valleys, watching where the, the rivers are and the streams are flowing because they're flowing downhill. And, and we got back and it was a great learning experience, but I guess, um, I, 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 uh, I'm a little bit concerned that some of these tried and true techniques that have worked for generations, um, are getting scrapped in favor of technology. You know, I see a lot of these, uh, satellite imagery, uh, you know, to locate, um, places to hunt. What's wrong with knocking on the door? You know, I think some of them are helpful and you can find out where the property boundaries are or find out where, um, there have been primary or secondary you know, growth from a cut that has been about 10, 15 years ago. But, you know, what's wrong with knocking on the door and getting some, you know, some interpersonal connection? Because I've, I've always found that that's where the hot tips come from. You know, when you talk with someone and you can look online all you want and you, they are helpful and I do use a lot of it. But, you know, I have never found anything that has been superior to knocking on the door and someone saying, hey, do you know Bob Walker down the road because he cut his whole back um, woodlot 15 years ago and it's loaded with grass. And that's not something that you can Google or find. And that's the fun part. You know, you're meeting people. You're you're interacting with people. It's, It's the sweet part of life. It's why I quit advertising to go into this. It's the people, it's the dogs, it's the animals, it's the environment, it's conservation, it's being outside and, you know, being surrounded by people who are similarly minded. So I'm a little concerned about the direction of it, but, you know, hopefully, you know, as you were pointing out on some of the fact-checking on some of the media outlets, hopefully it'll correct itself and this is just a... and we'll be able to use technology for its higher, highest and best purposes as opposed to just, you know, opinionated reasons. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, I've got, I guess, an 18-year-old and a 12-year-old son. And so we kind of struggle with this, you know, is are you a slave to technology? Um, does it serve you? You know, I think it's interesting, too, um, to see them. You know, I think there's been kind of um, – we try to package all of our outdoor experiences now. And so, you know, it's not about putting the time in and understanding that it's not a worse experience. It's a richer experience. And, um, you know, like showing up, paying your money and having the experience, whether it's a hunting or fishing experience, is it's okay, but it's not the same. A couple summers ago was a stinking hot August day. It was like a hundred during the day, it was like 90 at night. It was 100% humidity. It's about 8 o'clock, and I said to my wife, it's so stinking hot. You want to go get an ice cream? And she goes, yeah. So we go to, you know, this place called Soft Service, big, you know, Cape Cod's a tourist place in the summer. And there are these five good-looking guys. They're all in great shape. They were right in front of us, standing in line. But they were complaining my Lord, were they complaining. After listening to it for about two or three minutes, I was about to lose my mind. I said, guys, what is wrong? And this one said, um, this place sucks. <laughs> I said, brother, how bad can it be? <laughs> there are hot chicks and bikinis all over the beach. You can go fishing, surfing, stand-up paddle boarding. You can go canoeing, kayaking. You can rent a powerboat, uh, a sailboat. You can golf. You can play tennis on a clay court. 
you can hike, you can mountain bike, you can ride a road bike. I mean, you can go clamming. You can, I mean, how bad can it be? And he goes, there's no Wi-Fi on the beach. And at that point, it, so at that point, I was I was pretty hacked off. I just said, let's get out of here. And we went to a different place because I was a road test. But it made me wonder, like, why would they come to an active outdoor sport area where you could go fishing, surfing, you know, snorkeling, stand-up paddle boarding, all those, everything I said before, and be on their phone. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that was certainly not my experience in Boy Scouts. I mean, that was, uh, you know, back then it was basically boom boxes and Walkmen, and it was a great way to <laughs> to uh, – to have your have your your tent lines cut right so exactly that was the uh, the scoutmaster's enforcement tool of choice. Yeah, you know I'm almost ready to um, start a campaign called "Bring Back the Roadie," so that you could drink while you're driving. Because when I watch people, because you know, think about it: when you drink and drive, like if you're done fishing and you have a couple beers while you're driving. You were paranoid about getting pulled over for drinking while driving, but you were a better driver at that point because you're so paranoid about being caught. Whereas when I see people that are texting and driving, they're all over the road. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe we should start a new campaign, bring back the roadie. Uh, yeah, there you go. And and speaking of campaigns, when you're not uh, out in the field, you're the managing partner of the Cure Group. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the business and, you know, how it helps outdoor companies grow their business? So I started in advertising and public relations. Then I went to work for Orvis. I wound up running the wholesale um, division for national and international sales and marketing. And um, that's where I met my wife. She was running their contact center in Virginia. And I was on the road 300 days a year. Um, you know, she was, when, when you're running a call center, um, you know, peak season is, um, starts on Thanksgiving day eve and runs throughout the season, you know, so she was working through Christmas Eve and finally we just said, you know, there's gotta be a better way because I was doing, what I was doing in advertising, which is working all the time. And we said, well, you know, let's play to our strengths. We've got um, advertising, PR, branding, positioning, marketing. Um, we've got back-end ops and technology. Um, brought in a couple of financial partners um, to help on some of our projects. And um, and that's how we started the Gear Group uh, two thousand. Was it five or six? Six, five? I think 2000, late 2005. Um, so we've been around for 15 years. We've worked with um, a lot of companies, um, small, medium, and large. We do cap raises. Um, we've worked on the private and public sector. We've worked with conservation groups and travel and tourism, um, consumer goods. And um, we mostly focus on two parts, either launching new companies or taking underperforming companies and turning them around. And um, so 90% of our business is fish hunt. We have overlapped on some of the, um, you know, supporting activities. Could be uh, water sports, equestrian. Um, Don't do much with golf, but um, yeah, so... uh, that's been a lot of fun and um, everyone we work with, all of our employees and subcontractors are, they're, they're just great people. They're, they're from around the country and bring their A game and their skill sets. And we, we look for, um, we look to match ability with client. So obviously if it's someone, uh, if it's a wing shooting um, client, we're looking for art directors who actually bird hunt, um, who run dogs, who understand. We're looking for photographers or content creators. You know, we're really looking for people 
who live this. So it's bringing that that extra level of authenticity to a client as opposed to just hiring a general marketing agency that um, that understands marketing, branding, positioning, you know, e-com, et cetera. But because they don't, it's not in their DNA to fish and hunt. They, um, they understand it mentally, but not emotionally. And as you know, that's, that's what binds us all to, to this, these sports. You know, it's the emotional connection. It's the passion. It's bringing out that passion, like the, the why. Why do we do this? Why do we choose to bird hunt? Why do we choose to fly fish as opposed to go bowling or golfing? Not that there's anything wrong with bowling or golfing, but there's, it, it begs the question, you know, why is it that we choose fly fishing as opposed to a different sport? And that's what we want to bring to life. So it's, it's really celebrating the life blood of the of the client you know their reason for being what they can do to impact and make a consumer's experience better yeah it's interesting that you say that because i think you know if you make the mistake of picking um you know the blocking and tackling team um it generally never ends well from a marketing execution perspective you know, you have to be able to do that, but if you don't wire it with the passion, it just doesn't work. That's right. It's like, you know, and it's, it's, it's integral to writing, you know, it's, you know, one of the key things of, you know, when I read a lot of contemporary writers and, you know, what I'm most looking for is for them to show me. And what they most often do is tell me. So telling me is logical. Showing me is emotional. So if you um, are, if you say the old man, you are telling me and trying to get me to think that that man is old. Now, to my 22-year-old daughter, someone who is um, 32 is an old man. To a 32-year-old man, Someone who is 50 years old is an old man. For someone who's 50, you got to be 70 to be old. And those are very different. So you have to show the person. You know, he, the man was walking down the street. His, uh, he had no hair on the top of his head, and the fringe around the sides was gray. His knurled hands clutched uh, the walking canes. He was bent over from years of um, scoliosis, you know, so you're, you're showing someone as opposed to just saying the old man, because you don't know what the old man is. You got to show it. And when you show it, then you tap into someone's emotion. Yeah. And it kind of all goes downhill from there, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's what binds people to, to, to brands. You know, it's, it's that passion. Absolutely. And, you know, as we kind of wind down tonight, Tom, I know you write for a lot of different folks. What, where's the best place for people to kind of follow your writing? Um, you know, it used to be my own website, which was TomKeer.com, but I haven't had a chance to update it. So it's usually just look at bylines and magazines or you know, you can Google it. Um, I write for about 75 different titles. So I've got a uh, uh, minimally active social page. So I usually post some of the digital stuff and some of the print stuff on, on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. tend to do a little bit more of LinkedIn. But, um, yeah, kind of old school, and it's, which is funny because I get a lot of people that uh, – you know, good friends of mine that will call up and say, Hey, I just read this great article you'd like. <laughs> and I say, What's it about? <laughs> Tell me what it's about. And I say, Hey, I wrote that. And they usually say, You know, you didn't write that. Your writing isn't that good. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, write for Strong, um, which is a great magazine tale, I write for um, Sporting Classics. 
uh, shooting sportsman, pointing dog journal, retriever journal, just labs. After a life field dream, garden and gun, pheasants forever, quail forever, rough grass society, yeah, a bunch of them. It's fun. Absolutely. And, you know, what's the best way for folks to follow your adventures in the field and get in touch with you? Um, you know, probably on social media or, you know, email addresses, you know, our, our company website is thecuregroup.com or, you know, send me a, I like emails, um, tom at thecuregroup.com. Absolutely. And I'll drop those in the show notes and I'll also drop your social media handles in there too. Well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I live to serve, and I appreciate you taking some time uh, this evening. I'm sure you're tired. You've probably been running your dogs, I think, at this point for about a week. And uh, hopefully you've got some scotch uh, or some bourbon in your future this evening. Uh, bourbon will do. I'll have a glass in your honor, and I appreciate you having me on. So thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Tom. Talk to you later. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody.